you know, for a long time, uh, I thought that was that was a horrible moment that happened to me. My hero, even then, when I'm just almost 18 years old, my yeah. hero gives me a bollocking in his office mm. and tells me to get the out. Mm-hmm. And and so I was so traumatized by just being in front of arguably the greatest American director in history, and then having to live with that for years, the humiliation of what he did to me, without giving him the credit for what he was actually trying to tell me, which is, look at art, go to museums, look at composition, look at color, look at the horizon. He was basically in two hour, two minutes and 40 seconds giving me some of the greatest advice anybody's ever given me. But he did it in such a gruff way that I only saw the crustiness and I didn't, I, I didn't appreciate the value until years later. Welcome back to Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed at the cinema or the critics didn't like. Brad, episode 168. We kind of didn't choose this week's episode, right? We did not. We we did not choose this film from legendary director Steven Spielberg. But I will let our guests introduce why they picked this film. Alex, why are we watching this film? Um, Hello. Oh, hi, yeah, Alex. Welcome film. back, Alex. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we just, no, we, no your family, we just assume everybody knows who Alex is. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I picked this film because I saw it with my mother, and this is a very like mother-son film, so it had like a special meaning for me, and I knew it was going to lose a bunch of money, and I knew it had lost a bunch of money, and so I was just hoping to talk to you guys about it. I still don't know, like, how I feel about it. So I'm, I'm just excited to hear your guys' opinions, share mine. And um, I don't know. I, I learned a lot listening to you guys. So just hoping you can help me figure it out. Uh, so uh, that's an interesting statement. You, <laughs> you were watching the film and while you're watching the film, did, did you go, Oh man, this, this isn't going to go over. Or was it afterwards? You're like, I don't, I don't think that's going to sit well with everybody. Um, it was kind of during because I showed up and it was like a Friday afternoon and there's no one else in the theater. And after watching it, I was kind of just like, what, like, who's this movie made for other than Steven Spielberg? And just, I didn't, I don't know who it's made for. I don't know if you guys know who it's made for, but that that's kind of where my mind jumped to. Okay. <clears throat> well, we, we are talking about 2022's The Fablemans. Uh, and, and we'll get into the release and, and some of the accolades it did get on the critical side, but I, I thought it'd be interesting because this is a movie about filmmaking and, uh, it's semi autobiographical, I guess, in a sense, even though the characters are all, uh, made up, it, it's really, um, Steven Spielberg talking about growing up at a certain stage of his life, but I, I thought it'd be interesting. So there, there's a whole like subgenre of films which are movies about making movies. 
And I thought a good place for us to start before we get into talking about this one, which is one of the more recent ones, is maybe share the top three movies that that you like that are on the subject of somebody making a film or maybe the film industry, whatever it is. I mean, you can do anything with this. There, I was surprised just kind of, I, I, I have two movies, but that third one was really tough for me. So I went back to kind of look at a list and I was amazed at how many movies there are about movies. Um, but I'm going to start with you, Alex. And so we'll go from three to one. So your, your third most favorite to your, to your most favorite. What is coming in at number three for you on movies about movies? Yeah. Um, so like you said, it, it was kind of hard to narrow it down. I like wrote a list of like 17 movies off the top of my head that were about movies. Okay. And so it's hard to narrow it down, but um, this is going to be one that you guys have actually talked about and like introduced me to, and that's Blowout. Um, oh, it's, yeah. It really introduced me to like the like paranoid thriller films, I guess. Um, and I've really been on a kick with those recently. Like I, it introduced me to the conversation, um, the Manchurian candidate. Oh man. All the president's men. Those are some of the recent ones I've watched and just loved. Um, yeah, I, I love it. If, if anybody wants to hear more, like your guys podcast episode is the best place to go. Um, I've listened to your guys' episode like three times. Every time I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, I got to hear them talk about it again. Wow. So did you, had you seen Blowout before we talked about it? No, I'd never heard of it. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I'm glad, I'm glad so, a movie got some You get that Criterion 4K? Not yet. I bought the Blu-ray like two weeks before they announced the 4K. Isn't that how it works? You, yeah. You, you finally put your money down for the Blu-ray and then here's the new special edition with all the the fancy stuff. Yeah. I hate that. Okay. Brad, what's your, what's your number three? I don't, I don't know if it was hard for you to come up with three or if you just knew it's one, two, three right here. Well, I kind of went genre by genre. So none of mine are the same genre of film. Um, so my first one would be your pretentious avant-garde, um, 1963 film. It's eight and a half, uh, arguably one of the greatest films of all time, basically about a, a, Italian film director who like is trying to create a science fiction film. Science fiction is one of my favorite genres of film and it's a movie about a movie and I absolutely love it. And it's arguably one of the greatest films ever created. And I watch it on an annual basis just because I, I love it so much. Alex, have you seen eight and a half? I have. Yes. Um, I don't remember any of it. So oh it's, my it's on my like rewatch list for, for this year. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing pick. I figured you know, you'd yeah. bring the thunder with something a little pretentious. I had to. Uh, okay. So my number one and two, they're not a doubt without a doubt three. Oh my gosh. This was, this was terrible. Um, and I narrowed it down to these choices, Tropic Thunder, Sullivan's travels, uh, the player, Ed Wood, Son of Rambo, and Get Shorty. Those those were in the running for the third spot. But I have to go with this one. And, and kind of like you, Brad, I number three and number two and number one all have some comedic elements to it. But number three for me is is a full-out comedy. And I I think it's a great indictment of the film industry. 
specifically those that work at maybe the C tier level. And I think it's also um, some of the best performances from two actors that are in this film. And uh, this movie makes me laugh out loud every time I watch it. And trust me, I went back and forth. I, I, I was swapping this thing, you know, out. But um, I really solidified my answer maybe five minutes before we started talking. And uh, it's Bowfinger with Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin. I absolutely adore that film. There are sequences in there that um, bring tears to my eyes uh, when they're chasing Eddie Murphy um, around with the camera and trying to do the uh, garage um, sequence with the dog in the high heels. I, it's, it's fantastic. But I think it's, I think it's an interesting insight into that C-tiered filmmaker um, who is trying to, you know, I, I don't know, schmooze his way into just a really schlocky film. And uh, I, I, I really like that spirit of filmmaking that uh, it brings to the table. And plus, Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy are just absolutely hysterical. I assume you guys have seen this film. Oh, yeah. No, uh, no, but I added it to my watch list earlier today. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Whenever I was looking up movies based on or movies about movies, I read the synopsis. I was like, this seems interesting. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's, it's so it's directed by Yoda. Yes. Frank Oz. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's good. Did you know that Frank Oz was a director too, Alex. I didn't. Now you know. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Thank you. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh man. Okay. You need to go through the Frank Oz uh, filmography. There's a lot of gems in there. It's pretty solid. Okay. What's your number two, Alex? Um, my number two is going to be La La Land by Damien Chazelle. Um, I Ooh. don't think it's like a perfect movie at all, but it definitely like it definitely influenced me to go out and like expand my horizons. I didn't like musicals kind of like Brad until I watched that. And then that kind of led me on the journey of being more open to musicals and leading to maybe one that will be talked about later in this countdown. Um, but it also opened me up to romantic comedies in general. I, and now I just love Ryan Gosling and uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Have you guys seen it? Do you guys like it? I, I love it. Okay. Um, I, I like it, which is saying a lot for me for musicals. Yes. For Brad to like a musical, that pretty much puts it in probably the top yeah. 5% of musicals, to be quite but honest. But it's like got Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, and they just have chemistry off the, I mean, it just is coming off the screen. So, yeah. The movie posters for that, because I, I can't remember if there are three or four that they did. I want to have sex with both of them equally. That's how, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. You went there. The movie posters? Oh, you, you need to go and check out the movie posters for La La Land. They're fantastic. You have, have them. one right next to me. Didn't you? I think you might have got me one, Alex. I think I did. It's I, like a white and blue one. Yes, yes. I got that one from you. And then I had to go pick up yeah. the others. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, okay, what's your number two, Brad? Yeah, so I'm filling in my comedy slot here. This one is based on the making of what would be considered one of the worst films ever made. It's directed by James Franco. It's from 2017. It is Disaster Artist. Mm. Um, I went through a phase where I watched Disa the Disaster Artist like maybe like 10 times in like six months for some reason. It was just like every time I wanted to watch something, it just like came up and was like, Oh, I'm going to watch disaster artists again. Um, I think James Franco's performance of Tommy Wiseau is pretty spectacular. And yeah, it's got like everybody in it 
as like a bit character, it's it's pretty great. I I really like it a lot. I think it's really funny. I think it's very well done. Yeah, I don't know what else to say, but it's it's great. Okay. I mean, James Franco is a little problematic now, but it's still fine. Hey, he delivers a heck of a performance. So I have I have a I have a really f- special fondness for that film because Randy and I got to see that at the AFI. And, uh, oh, who's not Tommy Wiseau, Greg, Sin, um, uh, not Sinestro or it's <laughs> kind of like Sinestro. Yeah. I can't remember his last name. Anyways, he was there in attendance to talk about he's Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Yeah, he's Mark. So it was really fun to meet him. He signed a uh, copy of the disaster artist book for me. And then we got to talk to him a little bit before, uh, the screening saw the film. He did a whole Q and a, uh, that, that was a lot of fun. And I special thanks for Randy for dragging me out to the AFI to see that. Cause when he told me about it, it was like, yeah, I gotta go see it. Um, I'm not going to talk about my number two cause I already know it's Brad's number one. So we're going to okay. skip me cause, um, I'm, I'm betting on this one. I guarantee my number two is your number one. Okay. I'm also going to bet Alex because, um, you're you're like my adopted son for the most part. <laughs> I think I think I know what your number one is, which would probably be my number one because I I I think I introduced you to this film. I think so. Okay, so what's your number one? <laughs> my number one is Singing in the Rain. Yep, there you go. That's my number one. A hundred percent. Go yeah, ahead. I, 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 mean, I mean, indoctrination. <laughs> It's the greatest film. It, it is tied for the greatest film of all time with Drunken Master 2, in my opinion. The the reason I put that first, other than I think it's better than La La Land and Blowout, was I looked at it as La La Land and Blowout, you could probably take away the filmmaking perspective of those movies. Like La La Land's still about music and Blowout, there's still like the thriller element. But Singing in the Rain, you can't take away the the filmmaking from that because then it just doesn't exist. So that's why it's my number one. I agree with hundred percent. If, if you want to film that uh, I'm not, I'm not calling it historically accurate or anything of that nature, but it does a really good job of trying to capture the spirit of Hollywood moving from silent pictures to the talkies. And you get a glimpse of what the challenges are from filmmaking. And I agree with you, Alex, hundred percent. The whole point of that film is actors and actresses kind of making that transition as Hollywood is is going through that transition themselves. And you get a fantastic romantic comedy with it. And for a movie about making movies, it celebrates that, but then also becomes the greatest movie of all time, which in, in my opinion is is a feat. And if if any theater is playing this thing on the big screen. It's fantastic on 4K. It's always looked good, even down to DVD. The colors really pop on it. Um, but again, it's one of those films that I think you would really enjoy it if, if you saw it on the biggest screen possible. Uh, and it just, it's just, I, I don't know, it's pure joy. Um, and, and I love it 100%. So I agree with you. It's, it's, the, it's the greatest film of all time, next to Drunken Master 2. Uh, okay, Brad, I think... I think I know what your number one is, and it, and it's I think it's my number two, but we'll see. Go ahead. Okay. So in 1999, there was a documentary film on the making of a film called Colvin. Okay. Yep. Uh, it's called American Movie. It's arguably probably my favorite documentary when you come down to it. I love it. Uh, Mark is such like a 
I don't know. You pull for the guy and then you hate the guy. Then you pull for the guy. Then you hate the guy. And then he's got a friend named Mike who loves Surge. Uh, used to do drugs and now he's clean. Um, it's just a really spectacular movie. Um, you know, I don't know if you could ever replicate that film. Um, and they just released it on Blu-ray and I bought it and I watched it again and it still holds up really, really well. And yeah, it's like, I don't know what my favorite documentary is, but American movie might be it. I, I agree. It, that's my number two. So whereas singing the rain, I think is the greatest film about making films. I think American movie is the greatest film about the people making films, like the passion um, that gets a hold of a director, writer, actor. I mean, he, he did it all, right? And I love these stories about um, that sort of do-it-yourself guerrilla-style filmmaking and and even what they end up producing. Because I, I think the film that they shot, Coven, is part of the special feature. So you can watch it if you get the Blu-ray mm-hmm. or the DVD. And uh, man, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's probably, next to like King of Kong, it, it's probably one of my favorite documentaries of all time. I, I love that thing, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's so good. For every like Kevin Smith who like, you know, bet it on themselves to make it. There's a Mark who doesn't. <laughs> and uh, you can kind of see why in the film, you know, he's just, he knows everything about film, but he doesn't have really the work ethic or he's just inept when it comes to it. And uh, yeah, it's uh it's, it's great. Well, I, I Hey, at some point, Passion and drive will get you somewhere, right? So I think he had it some will. cameos. Did, didn't he have a cameo in that Jet Li movie, The One? With Jason I believe he did. Statham? Yeah, okay, there you go. Um, okay, so if you have a favorite movie about movies, send it in to us. We would love to hear your top three and your take. I think those are, are fantastic uh, selections. Um, so let's talk about this week's uh, The Fablemans from 2022. This is a Steven Spielberg film. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Because, Alex, I'm really curious. I, I mean, um, <laughs> watching you grow up and watching the films that you were exposed to, I have a lot of questions about where Steven Spielberg kind of fits within that. But um, yeah. by the time The Fablemans comes out in 2022, I mean, Spielberg is definitely one of the greatest American directors of all time. And legendary. Legendary, some might say. <laughs> But this film didn't do so well. So, so Brad, let's uh, let's talk about that. It only it only came out, you know, a year ago. How did, how did it do? Yeah. So, released November eleventh, twenty twenty two, with a modest budget of forty million dollars. And I think anyone in their right mind would say, if you give Steven Spielberg forty million dollars, he's obviously going to make that back. There's no way that film is going to bomb. Well, you'd be wrong because <laughs> domestically it makes seventeen point three. Um, and internationally makes 28.3 for a grand total of 45.6. Now, to be fair to this film, it never really releases wide like we would think. The widest it gets is about 1,100 theaters, and we consider wide now north roughly of like 3,000. 3, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, north of three. Uh, and uh, so opening weekend... It opens in four theaters Hmm. and it it makes $161,000, which is a a theater average of $40,000, which is pretty good. Um, But yeah, it never really gets a wide release. And I still 
don't understand how a Steven Spielberg film in 2022 doesn't come out in 3000 theaters. Do you think um, um, the timing of when this was released, they thought it would get another push if it got nominated for Oscars? I think so. And it did get a little bit of a bump, but not much. And like, it just peters out. Like, it's really sad to see. Like, it's opening weekend. It comes in 16th place. I mean, And then the highest it ever gets is like seventh. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. Um, it is like financial bomb, but critically it is not. It sits at a 92% with the critics. That's with 387 reviews. And with the audience, it sits at an 83%. So the critics do like this more. I think this is a, a critics film through and through. So the fact that 92% of critics uh, approve it is not, uh, not surprising to me. Okay. And Alex, you, when you went, not a lot of people there, but was this something that was on your radar? Um, meaning, Hey, you knew this was getting released. You wanted to go see it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, I remember bringing it up to people, no one having any idea what I was talking about. And I convinced <laughs> my mom to go with me because I didn't want to go alone. And yeah, since then, this is the first time I've ever talked to someone else about it who has seen it. So um, it was on my radar. I don't probably because it's a Spielberg movie, probably because it's a movie about movies. I think did uh, Empire of Light come out around the same time? I think that was a movie about movies. I can't remember if that's what it's called. Olivia Coleman's in it. Uh, never mind. Oh man, sure. no, it's not ringing a bell over <laughs> here, man. <laughs> but I've had a day, so today's is is going to be a little crazy. So, Troy, oh. you know who else is having a day? Uh oh, the Christians. Oh boy, on MovieGuide.org. Yeah, for those not familiar, MovieGuide.org is a as a website that reviews films not for their quality but for their content. And boy, they got some problems with the Fablemans. Pagan worldviews, maybe. Anyone, anyone want to guess on their scale of minus four to plus four what this falls? Because you're not going to get it right. All right, Alex, go for it. What do you think? I was gonna, I was gonna go negative two until you said you're not going to get it right. Oh no, no, no. I so I think <laughs> I think you've got a um, you've got a lot of problems in this thing in terms of infidelity, uh, a Christian who thinks. Jesus is really sexy and then tries to rape Sammy <laughs> and, and have him find the Lord over that rape. I don't know. <laughs> it's not rape, but it, man, it's cl- She's, she's very aggressive she's on very her. Aggressive. She's yes. very aggressive. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to swing for the fences and go negative four on this. It is a negative three. It's still way higher than I would have initially thought. Okay, so dominant worldview and other worldview content elements. Hear what they have to say. Strong romantic worldview says follow your heart when it comes to choosing a career and when it comes to to divorce your husband. Oh, my God. Even the the first sentence is terrible. And when it comes to divorce your husband to be with another person you love more. That's not a sentence. Okay. Which are equated to one another and in some overt anti-christian content so god damn so can we send a gift to them like how do you get them a subscription to like grammarly or something yeah grammarly let's do grammarly yeah two of the three christian characters in the film are anti-semitic teenage bigots who misuse the name of jesus and the third is a christian girl who thinks 
of Jesus as a romantic, sexy fantasy, but there are also some light moral elements, a few of which are endearing and heartwarming. Oh, I, th- I thought that whole sexy Jesus thing would have tipped it in the negative four, like out of the we're, game. We're going to come back to that. Okay. <clears throat> Foul language, about 20 obscenities, including one F word, Ooh. 15 strong profanities, about three Jesus profanities and 12 GD profanities and eight light exclamatory profanities. Plus, <laughs> I don't know how this is foul language, but mother buys a pet monkey and the youngest daughter tells her brother's girlfriend that the monkey throws his poop. Well, yeah, that's is it. So they wait. They said that's foul language. Yeah. Poop, poop is foul language, apparently. So I can't say poop anymore. I don't know. I guess just, I don't know what you're supposed to say. You got to edit uh, that out. Yeah, okay. Violence. Right. No more poop. <laughs> teenage boys shoots a silent world war two movie where the teenage boys act like they're getting shot. There's some fake blood exploding on their bodies. A scene shows a large circus train hitting a car on the railroad tracks and derailing boy recreates the scene with his electronic train set. Teenage boys shoots a silent Western where teenager teenage boys in Western outfits shoot guns at one another. So hold on. Uh, crashing a, a toy train set is considered violent. It's violent, Troy. Okay. Get and I'm right. not getting into heaven. I am not getting to heaven at this rate. Between no, I mean, it's and like crashing train sets. So like when we were like banging our action figures together, when we were little, cause they were fighting, apparently that's creating violence. Okay. Well, we chose violence. Yep. Um, Oh, the sheriff in that movie takes care of the stagecoach robbers with his six guns. An anti-Semitic teenage boy punches the Jewish teenage protagonist after the Jewish boy tells the girlfriend, the boy's girlfriend in public that he saw the boy kissing his ex-girlfriend. Another scuffle later with another anti-Semitic teenager. They say anti-Semitic quite a bit. And the other anti-Semitic teenage boy punches the boy and stops him from beating up the protagonist. Okay, Troy, here's our sex. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Seeing show how a married woman and mother has secretly fallen in love with her husband's best friend and the mother and father eventually divorce. There's a scene where a Christian teenage girl tells the Jewish teenage protagonist to her room where she idolizes pictures of Jesus and male celebrities on her wall and seduces the boy for a kiss while forcing him to pray to accept Jesus into his heart. Oh, she was going more for a kiss. She threw him on his, on her bed. Oh yeah. I mean, she wanted that D (laughs) communion. She wanted communion. No, she wanted communion. (laughs) Yeah. Get on your knees. All right. And there's a scene where the teenage protagonist sees one of the anti-Semitic, uh, tormentors kissing his ex-girlfriend. We've already said that nudity. Troy, we have upper male nudity in the beach sequence. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that during the beach sequence. Al- <laughs> yeah. Alcohol use. We have brief, brief alcohol use, including some high school students on a beach in 1963 or so. Ooh, it's terrible. I, I don't know why they had to throw in the year. Uh, and then smoking and or drug use and abuse. Man smokes a cigar. An older teenage boy lights up marijuana, <laughs> marijuana cigarette. It takes a couple puffs before he exits stage left. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I like that they added in the stage left. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's awesome. I will say one of my, my favorite parts about, uh, the, whatever they're called, the, this website. Movie Um, guide. Yeah. Movie guide is I've never been to the website. 
So it just sounds to me like Brad has no idea how to read every episode I listen to. <laughs> and that's like one of my favorite, like you should, you should try to read their website stories. I, uh, I'll leave it to you. I've never yeah. been either. I just assume when Brad goes, the blinding light from all the angels that are presented, make it hard to read the information. So Alex, I will tell you what I just read. Let me count the number of periods that there's like one period in there. And there's like, 75 semicolons. Wow. So, you know. Okay. And films you could have seen November of 2022. We have Black Panther Wakanda Forever. In a limited release, we have Spirited, that uh, Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds movie. She said The Menu, Bones and All, Devotion, Strange Worlds. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, and that is about it. So there some, you go. Some of those you can hear some thoughts on from Jose and uh, Justin over at Watch Get Plus too. I know the menu. I, I was on for Glass Onion. That's right, you were. Uh, okay, let's talk about the people behind the camera, in front of the camera. Look, we're we're going to spend a little time with this name, Steven Spielberg. Okay, so for those uninitiated, here's a guy, he's a legendary director. He's a legendary director. <laughs> He starts his career um, in television doing some TV episodes and a couple of movies. One of those films actually um, gets a theatrical run, too, called Duel from 1971. Alex, have you seen Duel? No, it's on my list. Okay. You've got a long list, man. Um, I know. Then, first theatrical movie with Goldie Hawn's Sugarland Express. Another one you should check out if you haven't seen it, Alex. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 1975's jaws that puts him on the map it's his second theatrical film second um yeah his second theatrical film has uh, an infamous story about the shark not working and everything else but it it is part of this the hollywood blockbuster is now being formed right so you have spielberg lucas with star wars jaws is starting to kick this off uh, in his filmography, I'm not going to read it all. You you can go and, and see all of that. But I'm sure when you hear Spielberg, you, you automatically know of some of your favorites. But he's had nine Oscar nominations for Best Director. He's had a bunch of other um, nominations for Best Picture, etc. Because he's a producer. Um, he's had two wins. But I want to go through the ones that he got nominated for. Close Encounter of the Third Kind in 77 was nominated for... That's a- I think those are plural encounters. Oh, yes. Close encounters singular. of the third kind in 77, because there were multiple encounters, was uh, nominated for best director for that. Okay. That's his third theatrical film. Yes. So he does Jaws and then follows it up with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. And not not a bad two out of three films there, buddy. Yeah. yeah. And, and my favorite of his filmography, um, which at the time it was released, it was just called Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's in 81. He gets nominated for best director for that. Um, he comes back the next year with E.T. the Extraterrestrial, right? Another huge hit, nominated for Best Director. So he doesn't get nominated again until Schindler's List in 93, but he wins for Best Director. Then he gets nominated for Saving Private Ryan in 99, wins another Best Director Oscar, then gets a nominee for Munich, Lincoln, West Side Story, and The Fablemans. I mean... Spielberg makes a film, the chances of him him getting nominated for Best Director, it's pretty high at this point. So the other thing I want to talk about real quick is uh, Amblin Entertainment. 
So Amblem is named after Spielberg's first commercially commercially released film, Amblem, from 1968. It's a short independent film about a man and a woman hitchhiking through the desert. Um, the company was established a year later in 1969, which I didn't know this. I thought it was created in the 80s. It was actually established much, much earlier, and it was properly incorporated in 1970. On July 14th, 1975, Spielberg signed a four-picture agreement with Universal Pictures to produce its feature films through his Amblin label, aiming to build upon the success of his two first theatrical pictures, which was Sugarland Express and Jaws. Although Amblin is an, inter- an independent production company, Universal distributes many of their productions, and Amblin operates out of a building on the Universal lot. Amblin produced its first film, Continental Divide, in 1981. I believe that one was with, um, is it James Belushi? Uh, One of his comedies that he did? It's John Belushi. John Belushi, sorry. You're right, John Belushi. With Spielberg serving as executive producer, the following year, Spielberg and Marshall caught the attention of Metro-Goldmayer, for which they produced Poltergeist with Amblin, but under the name Steven Spielberg Productions. The same year, Spielberg and Candy produced E.T. the Extraterrestrial, with Spielberg directing which ended up being the highest grossing film of the year. Now, I, I found this quote sort of interesting from back in 2004. So film critic Tom Schoen said this about Spielberg. If you have to point to any one director of the last 25 years, and so he's talking about 1979 to 2004, in whose work the medium of film was most fully itself, where we found out what it does best, when left to its own devices, it has to be that guy. So I, th- I think that pretty much sums up what most people within the industry and outside the industry who are movie fans think about Spielberg. So Alex, I'm going to start with you. Like, How big of a deal is, is Spielberg in, in your life or just film-going experience? Um, yeah, a, a pretty big deal. He wasn't until relatively recently. Growing up, I think... I mainly just watched Star Wars, Marvel, things like that. I think that's probably your fault, Troy, because I think you and you're welcome. You're welcome. Both of those. Yep. Yep. And it wasn't until um, probably 2020 when COVID hit that I really got into movies. And that's when like Jaws 4K was one of the first 4Ks I watched. And I was like, I don't get it. Why Why do old men love this movie? <laughs> um, and then I I stepped away from him and watched some uh, more pretentious like foreign films. And then gradually I've come back and now I've seen almost all of his big ones, if not all of them. And yeah, he's incredible. I don't know what I was missing with Jaws the first time. It's, so you came back yeah. around on Jaws? You like it now? Oh, 100%. Okay. Um, I was going to say, we would have to end this podcast early. (laughs) Yeah, Alex would get a stern lecture. Um, Yeah. All right, Brad. What's Now, given your age, you were not a part of what I'll call the golden age of Spielberg from 70s to 80s. So I'm curious where you came in in terms of Spielberg appreciation. Well, I mean, I had Raiders, I had E.T., and I had Temple of Doom on VHS. So I watched those three like it was my job. Um, It wasn't really until 91 and 93 that he cemented uh, 
like it took put his like stamp on my life with hook and then with jurassic park jurassic park i still vividly remember every moment i was in the theater for that movie i remember walking into it i remember seeing it i remember walking out i jurassic park isn't the first film i saw in the theater but it's the one that i can recall the most and the one that had the most impact on me to me like jaws yes that started the blockbuster but i think for me like the modern blockbuster starts with Jurassic Park. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I I mean, and then like he goes on and does like some really interesting stuff with like AI, Minority Report, uh, Munich, Lincoln. Like I'm not a huge fan of Lincoln, but I mean, it's still like to me, like when people are like, well, you know, he's got some stinkers on his, on his, on uh, a filmography. I'm like, Dude, if the terminal is the worst film you've ever directed, like you're doing just fine. Like Crystal Skull compared to some stuff that comes out now, it's like that's a way better movie than a lot of shit that we see now. I, I would so kind I of just, yeah, I would de- I could defend Crystal Skull to be quite honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like yeah. Hook, people are like, oh Hook, that's a terrible movie. Like your ass, it's a terrible movie. That movie's <laughs> awesome. So you know, and then he's arguably got some of like the greatest sci-fi films. He's probably got the best war film ever made. Probably the best war sequence ever filmed. Um, the storming of Normandy. Um, like if you want like a good adventure film, like Spielberg can just do it. And I think every kid, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but like every kid I knew wanted to be a film director and they wanted to be Steven Spielberg. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw Jaws in the theater. My dad had, had took me to see it when I was like three or four years old. And I was doing fine with it up until Father they lowered. The uh, yeah, uh, up until they lowered that cage in the water. And then I was screaming and he had to take me out and he missed the last part of the film. But uh, I remember Close Encounters in the theater. I mean, his uh, his movies, especially early childhood, were a big event. And nothing was bigger for me than Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as soon as that hit home media or cable, I mean, you you just watch that over and over and over again. So I've always appreciated his work from the get-go and even his lesser films like Sugarland Express. Um, Did you guys ever see Always? Uh, So that was, I think, his remake of A Guy Named Joe, which I I really enjoy. But I agree with you, Brad. I mean, Oh, that's Richard Dreyfuss and Holly Hunter. John Goodman, I think, is in that too. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's he, even even when he does no, something. Guy, did you say a guy named Joe is a remake? A guy named a guy named Joe isn't that yeah. what it's based on? Okay, yeah, yeah, yep. And and even something like that, where some people may look at that and go, well, "It's kind of pedestrian." I, st- I still think he's a solid filmmaker. So um, yeah, it's to call Spielberg one of the greatest American film directors of all time. I I don't think is wrong. I think he is. He's arguably the greatest American film director. I mean, think about it. If you're a person in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s, Spielberg probably directed your favorite childhood film. Yes, for for the modern art. I agree 100%. But, I mean, the scope of American film directors with Billy Wilder, John Ford, which we'll talk about here when we talk about this film, he's up there in my opinion. The Kubricks obviously. Um, so he's, uh, one of the books that I just got done reading, I think was called the devil's candy, which was about the making of the bonfire of the vanities. 
And then it just, it clicked with me because there's a whole um, section of him and De Palma are like best friends. And Spielberg has a huge influence on Brian De Palma's career and De Palma even on Spielberg to a certain degree. So you've got all these directors that came out of the seventies that hung out and knew each other, you know, with Coppola and, and Lucas and everything else. And, um, probably Spielberg more so out of all of the ones that he was hanging out with, uh, had the most successes, but then also, uh, I think was the smartest from a business perspective and got along with the studios the most, especially mm-hmm. compared to somebody like Brian De Palma. Yeah, he's like the pop music of director that like he makes a very wide audience film. But but it has substance big time. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh screenplay for this one. It's done by Steven Spielberg. But there's another name, real quick, I just want to mention Tony Kushner. So Tony's an American author, playwright, and screenwriter. He is probably best known for um a play called Angels in America. It's a play in two parts. And, um, I think he ended up winning a Pulitzer prize and then also a Tony award for that work. It ended up being a seven hour, I think miniseries on HBO. Um, but it's, it's really about the AIDS epidemic in a, in a Reagan era, New York. Okay. From there, he gets into movies via Steven Spielberg, more or less. So when you look at some of Spielberg's later films, starting with Munich in 2005, Um, he's writing screenplays for Spielberg or with Spielberg. So Tony worked on Munich, Lincoln, West Side Story, and then the Fablemans that we're talking tonight. Cinematography is by Janusz Kaminski. So here's another one. When you talk about pedigree, seven Oscar nominations and two wins. He won for two Spielberg films, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, but he's been nominated for Amistad, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, War Horse, Lincoln, and West Side Story. So hook him up with Spielberg. They're both getting Oscars, right? And then legendary composer, one of his final, well, supposedly one of his final <laughs> scores is John Williams. So I think John Williams has said this and Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny were sort of his, his last works. And um, those are sort of the major players behind I feel like he scene. said that like 97 times, maybe? Yeah. Give or take one or two of those. I mean, if anybody's going to get him out of retirement, it's always going to be Spielberg, I think. Yeah, because it's like, oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that's going to be the last time I do. And then like, no, that's not it. Yeah. Yep. Now, in front of the camera, uh, I'm going to list some names. Maybe we'll spend some time talking about a couple of them. We got Gabriel LaBelle as Sammy Fableman. Um, A lot of TV work. He's done some stuff like uh, The Predator in 2018. Dead Shack in 2017, um, which actually is a really good film. It's on Shudder. Um, I haven't it, seen it. Oh yeah, check check it out. It's it's a horror comedy. It's a lot of fun. Um, but the and and he's you know the star of the film. But some of the other stars in the film, Michelle Williams as Mitzi Fableman, the mom. Ooh. Yeah. So she goes from Halloween H2O 20 years later, one of her earlier works, to a bunch of nominations. Nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress, Brokeback Mountain. Nominated for Leading Role in Blue Valentine. Um, then gets another nomination the a year later with My Week with Marilyn. Um, and is nominated for Best Actress. And then gets nominated for Manchester by the Sea in 2016 for Actress in a Supporting Role. Um, m- most recently, this film, The Fablemans, also got nominated for an Oscar uh, for Leading Role. 
And for some reason, she shows up with those damn Venom films. Like, yes, and, and she does Venom do? and stuff like that. I mean, Alex, you are you uh, are you a Michelle fan? Is, is she an actor or actress that as soon as you see her name, you're you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to check that thing out. I I wouldn't necessarily say that. Like, I have, out of all the movies you listed, I don't even know if I've seen them. Like, I've seen Shutter Island. But the rest of them, I don't think so. She's someone that I know from her image. Like if I see her in a trailer, I know who she is. But I, I'm not very familiar with her work. Well, you got to start with Halloween H two O, man. Right? Okay. <laughs> Do you? Is that one of the Rob Zombie ones or no? Oh no 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 no. Okay. No. Oh no no. Okay. No. 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 That's a whole different conversation. That's a Steve, Steve <laughs> Miner joint, my friend. Yes. Oh, my mistake. Yeah. Well, what about you, Brad? Where Where do you land on her? I mean, I don't think there's a an actor who was better at crying than Michelle Williams, um, blue Valentine, Manchester by the sea. Um, I think she's crying a lot in shutter Island as well. She just has a really good cry. Uh, but I think she's, I think she's brilliant to be honest with you. Um, yeah, again, she works with a ton of different directors. One of my favorite Ridley Scott's, you know, she, all the money in the world. I think that movie's way better than it has any right to be. Her performance is great. I just think she elevates a lot of stuff. Again, I don't know why she's in Venom. Um, also, her role in like Oz, the, the Great and Powerful is weird because James Franco is really weird in that movie. But anyway, um, I really I really like her a lot. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. I, I think she's she's obviously not underappreciated because look at the nominations that she garners for her performances, but I really don't think enough people talk about her filmography. Um, she is, you know, one of, if you're talking about one of the, the working actresses out in Hollywood, she's definitely in the top 3% of my, in my opinion, she's fantastic. Um, the next one, Paul Dano, man, he, he plays the father, Bert Fableman. He had a year in 2022, so he does this film, but earlier that year, he gets to be the big baddie in the Batman. Um, so what what an interesting filmography he's had too, Brad. Where, he's where got do you a land crazy on crazy filmography? Like just yeah. the breadth of what he does. You know, there will be blood, and then Little Miss Sunshine. Like all these weird roles, and then you see him in this film, and then he's playing obviously the Rid- the Riddler. It's just, he's just weird. Swiss army man is Hank. Great film. Great performance. Yeah. He's doing comedies like the girl next door and stuff like that. Back in Prison, early 2000, that, his performance in prisoners is amazing. Oh my just, God. He's so good. In that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's Alex, like a weird looking guy, but yeah, he can do a lot. Oh, he has a distinct look. There's, there's no doubt about yeah. that. You, like, you I fa- wouldn't let him babysit my kids. Oh, wh- why? It's just, he looks kind of creepy, man. Okay. All right. That's, that's a bit judgy. Okay. Um, Alex, would you let Paul babysit your kids? <laughs> um, if he's dressed up like uh, Bert Fableman, I think is his character in this, then yeah. sure. He, he seems like a little teddy bear. I'm a big fan. I feel like he, he never is, plays the same character in any of his roles. And it's, it's really cool to see him just like take a new character and I don't know, become that person. And I just forget all of his other roles. Like, I didn't, like you said, 2022, the Batman and then Fableman's like, I don't know how you do both of those movies. And the whole time I'm watching the Fableman's, I'm not just remembering how creepy he was as the Riddler. 
Well, we're, I'm going to save my comments for Paul when we talk about the Fablemans. I will say Ooh. this. I think he's interesting. I think he has okay. an interesting look. Um, I think he does become those characters. I think his success varies at what he, so I love the fact that he swings for the fences, but I can honestly say, I don't know if it works all the time. I, I will be the dissenter here on the Batman and go, I thought he was okay. There, there was something him, about it that just cut off his mic. Get him out of here. Yeah. Um, I, again, <laughs> I, I really appreciate him as an actor because I, I agree with you, Brad, his filmography is so diverse and I love the stuff he's tackling but there's always something about it that always hits me like it's coming out of left field a little bit. And maybe it's because he's not going to my expectations, which is good. But sometimes it takes me a bit to warm up to him in that part. Does that make sense? Yeah. He's also like going to be in the film. I'm kind of arguably like the most excited for, and that's dumb money. It's the, it's the wall street bets film oh, okay yeah you play yeah so i can't wait for that so yeah yeah he's he's always one that after a few years i'm like oh man he's really good in that but my initial knee-jerk reaction to it is well that is not what i expected and i feel like it i i, I appreciate that i like it when they're delivering something i'm i'm not expecting but it i don't know there's there's always something about his performance i get real nitpicky about um two names i'm gonna mention we probably won't spend any time on because i would much rather talk about them in some other stuff, but we got Seth Rogen as Benny and Judd Hirsch shows up for about five, maybe 10 minutes in this film as uncle Boris. So um, we'll, we'll talk about that sequence. Production and development is pretty quiet on this one. Um, it, it seemed to run pretty smooth across the board, but that I think is typical for Spielberg films outside I mean, of Jaws. Been right? making films for 40 years. I think he knows how to do it by now. Yeah. So the film is semi-autobiographical, which we we talked about. It's loosely based on his adolescence and first years as a filmmaker. The plot is told through an original story of the fictional Sammy Fableman, a young aspiring filmmaker who explores how the power of films can help him see the truth about his dysfunctional family and those around him. So that's the basic premise of the film. In 99, Spielberg said he had been thinking of directing a film about his childhood for some time. Titled I'll Be Home, the project was originally written by his sister, Anne Spielberg. In 2004, while working on Munich, Spielberg told screenwriter Tony Kushner his life story, with Kushner telling him in response, someday you're going to have to make a film about this. The 80 to 90 page plot outline for The Fablemans was worked on in 2019 during filming of Spielberg's 2021 film version of West Side Story, and work on the screenplay began on October 2nd, 2020, during lockdowns caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and lasted for two months when they finished the screenplay in December of 2020. But again, filming, post-production, all of that stuff, super smooth. Um, real quick, before we get into thoughts of our film, you kind of mentioned it, Brad. $40 million budget in an era where 200 and $300 million movies exist. So $40 million is is nothing. And this thing does great with the critics, but nobody wanted to see it. Uh, even with all those Academy Award nominations. Do you guys have a theory why? Um, was it just a crowded marketplace? Um, or people just weren't attuned to the story? I, I'll start with you, Alex. You Do you have any theories why this thing didn't do so hot? 
Um, I guess I would just say I'm I'm not sure who it's made for other than I, like us film lovers and Steven Spielberg, I guess. But it's the the plot I think is is not interesting enough to grab like just your average person. Um, I think I you guys know more about box offices than I do, but I feel like it's horror movies that have an interesting premise. They might not even be good, but that's what people will go see. And then the next big franchise or whatever, that's what people will go see. But this is just the Fablemans. It's about a family. Um, I think that's probably, that's my assumption of what happened. I, do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah. What do you think, Brett? Um, I, you know, in 2022, I think people were still, and I think even now, people are, are still a little hesitant to go to the theater. Um, I don't think The Fablemans is the film that people would be like, you know what, let's pack up everyone and go see uh, this film about Steven Spielberg in his teenage years. Um, and I don't even know if it really was marketed that way. Um, but I, I also think like if this film is... 15 years earlier it might have more of an impact when spielberg is much more of a of a name like spielberg's not at his peak anymore um and you know you're catching a film about a director who's been directing films for 50 years but now he's like not in his prime right after covid it looks kind of weird it's two and a half hours. There's just a lot of things that are a hard sell on the whole deal. Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of equate this to every year when the Academy Awards comes out and you have a bunch of uh, pundits talk about the ratings and, and each and every year it drops except for the one year where Will Smith slaps somebody. And then the next year, everybody's like, Oh, is that going to happen again? So maybe the viewership's up a little bit, right? Some drama, but uh, this are you trying to say that was an inside job, Troy, to boost up ratings? No, I, who knows? Who, I, I wouldn't be you? if if they came back and said, "Yeah, conspiracy, Troy." Sure, um, <laughs> but it 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 reminds me that the general public just doesn't care, and I don't think the general public cares about a Steven Spielberg film about Steven Spielberg. Um, I think you want to watch a guy suck his own dick. It's like kind of, you know, I mean, they're not, well, <laughs> that might have, his head. okay. <laughs> we're talking an entirely different film here. Um, it's not that kind of movie. I'm just saying it's the spectacle. Later, Alex. <laughs> oh my God. It's, uh, it's, oh my God. I can't even talk when yeah, you be realist like that. Um, yeah, you, you you go. Hey, here's here's this uh, amazing filmmaker. I, I I like Alex's take on it. Like it's a movie made for people who like films, and we're talking films, not movies. But I think the general movie going cinema. In, we're talking about cinema. Yeah, we're talking about cinema, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like Hugo, right? Like Hugo, yeah. Same thing by yeah. a huge director. Not what people want. Oh, I agree. I, like I don't know if a director sells a film anymore. I don't know what you guys think, but. I, uh, I, just, I think Christopher Nolan can. I think there's evidence that he uh, has quite the pull. Oh, that's a I good mean, point. I didn't even think about curious that. curious to You're see right. what happens with Tarantino's quote unquote last film, what, what his name pulls. But yeah, there, that's valid. So do you now. think, do you think it's like I mean, a changing Fitcher, of the guard? Fitcher's films go to Netflix now. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, well, let me, let me rephrase it then. Cause you're totally right. Spielberg isn't a name that carries itself to where people are going to flock to the cinema. Maybe a Nolan does, maybe a Tarantino does. So maybe it's just a changing of the guard, right? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. I also wonder if like, I don't want to say the average movie watcher doesn't care about quality, but like aren't DVD sales way higher than 4k sales still? Like when I'm watching a movie, I want it to be good. I want it to be high quality and people are out here buying DVDs and watching uh, spirited or whatever that like Ryan Reynolds movie you mentioned earlier was. Um, I don't think they watched that either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But they're watching Red think, Notice, Troy. Oh god, yeah, I freaking hate that movie. People, I think that's a a big thing now is the like second screen entertainment is mm. people are making stuff for you to have on in the background while you scroll on TikTok, and that's I don't know if that's what people are looking for, and they're like, I'm not going to the theaters to watch this because I can't have TikTok out, and I have to pay attention to this drama about a family. I I read an article the other day about some theater chains are thinking about having screenings where you're allowed to be on your phone while the, while the movie is playing. I'd be pissed out of my face with that stuff. I agree. That's terrible. All right. Well, I've been dying to talk about this film with you too. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dive right into the Fablemans and uh, see what everybody thinks. So stay tuned. A cup of whipped hot chocolate tastes great right now. Carnation's Cocoa Supreme, the delicious hot chocolate drink with the light, delicate flavor you like. Wouldn't a good hot cup taste good right now? Ask for a cup of whipped hot chocolate at our snack bar. Jaws, the original, is back. The film that shocked millions of dreams into nightmares is back. You want to test your nerves? See Jaws. If you dare. Jaws at the Ritz Leicester Square now. Certificate A. Alex, I, okay, walk me through this. You saw it in the theaters. Uh, this is another viewing for you. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, so this is actually my third time watching this movie. God, uh, you're an expert. I, Jesus. I don't know. I don't know about that. Fableman's expert. See, okay, is it twice go. twice at home or twice in the theater, once at home? Twice at home. Okay. That's seven and a half hours of your life, Alex. I know. I'm I mean, very disappointed. No, don't be. Like, it's it's not even about like the quality of the the movie. It's just you know there's all the movies you guys are talking about. You're like Alex, you seen this? And I'm like it's on the watch list. But, but I've seen The Fablemans three times, and it just came out last December. Um, so yeah, I saw it in theaters with my mom, and it was a very special experience. I saw it on my birthday too. So that did was she, did she cool. like it? Did Jeannie like it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she did. Right. Um. And I loved it. And so when the 4K came out, I was like, I'd been telling my girlfriend all about it. I was like, oh, we got to watch this movie together. So I watched it as soon as the 4K came out. And it wasn't a very special experience that time. Like, I was like, I started seeing the flaws in the film. And I was like, your girlfriend took a hearty nap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she didn't. 
love it um she saw a little bit of like a is it an oedipus complex where like a man's in love with his mother um uh, well yeah see there there you go brad it should have been a negative four for that throw yeah. that in <laughs> they missed that he loves his mother and the smell of his own farts yes okay yep. yeah so that's that's when i reached out to you guys and said i wanted to talk about it because i wasn't even sure where i landed on it and then in preparation for this obviously i watched it again and i i'm not sure where i landed i'm pretty sure it's somewhere in the middle of the the first two viewings um it's a well-made film there it doesn't always work but i enjoy it i don't think i'll watch it again for a couple of years because of how many how many hours i've spent on it recently but was, i enjoy it was there anything of of the sequences or the scenes um and especially on your third viewing did anything just pop out and you go okay this this is what's dragging me to watch this a third time like this sequence this performance was, was there something within it that really kind of spoke to you? I think there's an obvious answer to this question. Um, I, I don't have an obvious answer. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear what, what Brad thinks it is. It's Judd it Hirsch. Mostly, why, why is Judd Hirsch in this film? <laughs> okay. He definitely steals his scene. And so does David Lynch. Like I was so excited for the ending again to watch the David Lynch part. I watched that again today just because I was excited to record this. I was like, let me see David Lynch. Okay. Um, I think on my third viewing, the the beginning, I was not as into it. And then once they make their move to out west to like Phoenix and California, and it kind of turns into a teen drama, like he starts going to school and they're, like that drama occurs is when I get really into it and like seeing him get back into making movies and like falling out of it. That's where it really speaks to me. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay, Brad, I'm, I'm dying to know you and I have actually texted a little bit on this. I know where you stand. Oh yeah, you do. Um, but I have no idea where you stand on this. So lay it on me, bud. Yeah. So I, I had a, like an, an emotional connection to this, to this film. Um, Growing up, I've, I've talked about it before. Like I wanted to do art. I wanted to do comic book stuff. And that's all I did. Like I played sports and I drew pictures of people in action poses. And like my parents were very receptive of that. But my grandpa and I, every Christmas would like go over all the stuff I drew and he would look over it and all this. So I had like a really strong emotional connection to this movie about a kid who has this passion and like, it's like an artful passion, but I, you know, ended up not doing it. And I've, I've lament about that every once in a while. And this kind of made me, made me go down that path again. Um, I, I think Alex is right. Like you can't argue that this film isn't made like at top level. Like it's, it's very well made, very well acted it's got a lot of stuff that's going for it. I think it's too damn long. I argue why Judd Hirsch is in this movie. Like I, I do understand why he's in it, but you always have to think about with, with film is like, if you were to cut a scene, is the film still work? And like you cut him out and it's still just as fine. Like his advice to him to, um, Sammy about making films. Cause that's what your, your mom would want you to do. 
that's not really the inciting incident that gets him back into making film. Like, so that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But I mean, um, is, isn't, isn't really his sequence to introduce sort of this concept that art is almost like an addiction. I mean, I, I will give credit. There's that line where he's talking about, well, is sticking your head in a lion art? He's like, no, that's balls. Yeah. Not getting your head bit or something is the artistic part or something. So yeah. there, there are a lot of things that get introduced in his monologue and in that sequence that are going to be carried through and, and said again and again and again. I think it still works without him. Okay. Um, but like, and I also, I had a, I had a, a super eight camera that we would, would film stuff all the time with and get the film developed. And I learned how to splice film when I was younger. And again, at some point in time, when I thought, I don't know, I want to be an artist. I want to be a director. I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. So Sammy spoke to me a lot in this, but I, I wanted to love this a, because it's about film B it's from a director. I really respect and love, but I just think like two and a half hours. And I, I like the first hour kind of drags for me. Yeah. It like just doesn't fully work. Like 75% of it really does. But the 25 that doesn't kind of pulls it down for me. I don't know, man. Like this might be a film that I can't really decide how I feel about it until I watch it again. I won't watch it three times, <laughs> but I'll watch it again. And maybe my opinion changes. Cause I'll, I'll, I'll kind of know the beats of it a little bit better. Um, but again, you kind of see all the, uh, all the, the hallmarks of, of Stevens, of Steven Spielberg. Cause you like got the mom issues. Like she's kind of a, shit heel so like there you can see why all the moms in steven spielberg films are kind of shitty um because his mom arguably was supportive but she was sleeping around on her husband um so yeah man i i don't know i'm still up in the air about it i wish the 25 percent that didn't work for me did because i would think this is a brilliant film and i just think it's okay okay uh, I think Spielberg is at his best. And I think I read this somewhere and it's always resonated with me when I think about him as a director, when he takes ordinary characters, just average day Joe's right. And Jane's and puts them in extraordinary circumstances. I think he makes an exciting film. So if you go back and especially look at, you know, 70s, 80s, early 90s, you know, even stuff like Schindler's List, Munich, the stories are so compelling because it's just everyday people facing just these extraordinary circumstances that are so far out of their control, supernatural, whatever you want to want to call it. And I think he's the best storyteller out there. When you take an everyday person and put them in everyday scenarios, I think that requires nuance and um, a much different type of storytelling that I don't know if Spielberg is really good at, to be quite honest. Um, and that is probably my sort of introduction into what I think about this film. He, most scenes, 
and by most, I mean 90% of the scenes, are so heavy-handed. And he tries to cram the importance of every line of dialogue in each one of these scenes. And um, it reminds me of this uh, motto, um, not motto. Motto? (laughs) Motto. Folks, I burned ramen noodles tonight in the microwave. This is what kind of day I'm having. My brain is fried. Okay, so, yeah, there you go. Um, it just reminds me of the saying. If We're ev- laughing with you, Troy. I know, thank you. If everything is important, nothing is important. Nothing is important, yep. yeah. Yeah, and that, that's kind of how I feel about a majority of these scenes. Um, this movie feels, like you, you said, Alex, who's it made for? I, I think this is uh, Steven Spielberg Therapy. Um, and not in a good insightful way. Um, I feel like I sat through three long sessions that were tied to these, uh, well, let's start when you move to the desert. Well, let's start when you move to Los Angeles and then great. Here's a therapy session on that. Um, a big chunk of this film is preaching about art and watching his dad get cucked. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is that too? Um, but it's, it's preaching to, I think, an already converted artist or a converted audience that says, yeah, we already know art's important. Right. So we, we already know Spielberg's work is influenced by all these events. Like I, I totally get it point taken. Right. Um, but all of these anecdotes feel really repetitious. So something bad happens. They, then he goes to get lost in filmmaking. Then the dad comes back and says, Hey, I got promoted. We're going to go do this. And then they move. Then something bad happens, and then he gets lost in his art again. And then his dad's like, oh, well, we're going to move. And maybe this time I'm getting divorced, and that's why we're moving. So um, it's another variation, and all three sequences play out the same. Um, And the importance of art and how you deal with real life, like, I I get it. I got it it after the first two sequences. And I agree with you, the, the first 45 minutes, this is where I started texting Brad, the first hour of this thing was like taking visual NyQuil. It was, it was so boring. Yeah. Um, and every, everything is so heavy handed and it really surprised me to see the critical and even audience reaction to this. And again, here's my theory and I'm, I'll be really harsh about it. The critics are afraid to tell Steven Spielberg, he made a boring ass movie. The audience who went to see this were the cinephiles and they don't want to look dumb and go, well, the Fablemans is just a boring ass movie where it's an hour too long and it's saying the same crap over and over again. And it's really pretentious now. So like you think if this is directed in real life by Sammy Fableman and Steven Spielberg's name is not attached to it, it doesn't carry the same weight. Therefore critically probably not critics aren't going to, I don't want to say give a pass, but maybe quite possibly John Smith directs this thing, not Steven Spielberg. And everybody would be like, why is this playing in theaters? Why is this not a daytime soap opera? Why is it not on Netflix or Amazon? Yeah. But I mean, it is Steven Spielberg and he has earned the right to, to make this. Like I, so, and, and here's, here's now I'm being super harsh on this, but I will tell you, there are some sequences in this thing that I think are, are Spielberg Spielbergian. Is that a, can we say that? Can we make that yeah, a word? Sure. Is that a word? Okay. And I don't know what you guys. So I do have some sequences where I'm like, okay, that that's fantastic. 
and I, I use the word fantastic. So I, I break this film into like um, 33%, 33%, 33%. I don't know where the 1% also call Also into thirds. Yes, good yeah, job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's 1% hanging out there, and I don't know where to put it. I mean, so there's these scenes that just stick with you, and you're like, yes, why isn't the movie like this? Then there's these scenes that are just like, okay, this belongs on daytime soap opera. And then there's a couple scenes where you're like, what is going on? Like, I, I, it doesn't make sense. So I'll start with these scenes and, and see if you guys have any of these. So Sammy's grandmother slowly dying. Um, you see her neck pulse and then stop. And then you hear the beeping monitors, right? Um, and he's concentrating on this one detail of his grandmother while his mom is crying and everything else. I thought that was an amazing sequence. Mm-hmm. That feels like cinema auteur work. Um, I, I act, <laughs> I agree with you. The uncle Boris section, you're like, take it out. Does it harm it? No, but that character, as soon as you are introduced to that character, now I'm like, well, I don't want to follow Sammy anymore. I want to follow that guy because just what a little I know about him and some of his stories and even how he's acting is like. Well, that's the character that sounds interesting, not Sammy. I mean, he literally gets in the car and he's like, goodbye movie and never shows back up. He's <laughs> gone from the movie. I know it's, yeah. it's feels out of play. I don't know what you guys think, but that I agree with you hundred percent, Brad. It's like, why is that in there? But as soon as it's done, it's like, well, that was amazing. And why aren't we in the cab with that guy? Yeah. I mean, is that fair or no, you're not wrong. I guess I think the, there's other examples of that too. Like I like his, uh jesus freak girlfriend too like whenever she's on the screen i'm like i want more of this because of how weird it is and like <laughs> it's it's way different than the rest of the movie like it it actually feels different and then the same thing when david lynch shows up like obviously i don't want a whole movie of just that i don't think but i kind of to add on to what you're saying Sammy's life is like pretty boring, but whenever he interacts with these types of characters, that's whenever I'm more interested and I feel like it's executed better. It's almost like everyone in Sammy's life is more interesting than he is. Well, not everyone. Well, not everyone. Oh, are we going, are we doing the Paul Dano stuff now? Well, not yet. I I still, I, before we get there, (laughs) um, I, I agree with you, Alex, like the, uh, the John Ford sequence is, is fantastic. And, Hey, that is that is an amazing way to end your film. I think this movie has an amazing ending, and I think people walked out of the theater going, "Wow, that that was a fantastic ending." But then they they slept through the first or the other two and a half hours or whatever, and forgot about what came before that ending. So I, I agree with you, um, Sammy giving the kid direction. Like, oh, was that guy supposed to be John Ford? Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sammy giving direction during the kid when they're, when they're filming the war scene and then the kid's reaction to that. And then how he, he keeps walking. I'm like that. That's a fantastic sequence. It's super, super interesting. Well, um, and I also heard that Spielberg recreated his films. Yeah. For this, which yeah. is, so that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's cool. cool. Like the little, the little details about, well, how did you get the, the gunfire in the, in the Western? Oh, I, I, you know, put little holes. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, Sammy showing his mom the infidelity reel within the closet, I thought was kind of an interesting performance. Now, we'll talk about Michelle in a minute. She falls in another category. But this one, 
I do think she's not overacting. I think it's genuine and and feels organic, like like that response to her son showing that. And then his response, like, I'm so sorry, I won't tell anybody. I, I thought that was kind of moving. Um, and then the other thing that I thought was really interesting was there's this pedestrian, hey, your mom and I are getting divorced, et cetera, et cetera. But then Sammy turns to the mirror and he's seeing a reflection of himself filming all of this. And those are the sequences I wanted more of in this film. And so when you're saying, okay, here's six or seven scenes that I thought were really powerful. And I'm like, wow, that, that feels like a Steven Spielberg directed segment. It only adds up to maybe 30 or 45 minutes within a two and a half hour runtime. Um, and, and to me, that's a problem. Now the scenes that really annoy me, the first 45 minutes right out of the gate, um, man, is it pretentious and super boring? Every scene's important. And you get these lines like, you know what I miss about playing the piano, surrendering to the score. And she says it like that too. So, um, it just sounds terrible. Um, driving towards a tornado. Now, full disclosure, grew up in Kansas. Yeah, I was going to say, you chased a lot of tornadoes. So we did We did not chase tornadoes. We learned that when you see a funnel cloud like that, you go inside in the basement. That sequence made like, hey, kids, get in the car. Let's. This isn't Twister 2. Like, it did not belong in that film. Only for her to stop the car and watch shopping carts go in front of her and go, everything's going to be okay because she's equating her chaotic life to this tour. I, I get it. Heavy-handed as hell. Um, the film is, the film's unbearable. I, I think you said this, Alex, the film's unbearable until you get the teenage years. In my opinion, the film is atrocious, but once you get to the teenage years, you're like, I think we got a film here. Um, a little harsh, atrocious. It's atrocious it, because those first teenage years are so heavy handed, rose colored and non-interesting. I, 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 I couldn't believe Spielberg did that or. Spielberg was sleepwalking, taking the same melatonin that, you know, he was ever given everybody else, except Michelle. She was doing her thing. Um, the other thing that annoyed me was her buying a monkey because she's depressed. Uh, now, in her defense, I would be depressed too if my choices were Paul and Seth. I mean, that's terrible. Um, so, yeah, I guess you would buy a monkey. However, the monkey sequence feels so out of place. And then what is supposed to be, I don't know if it's comedy or something of that nature, turns into more important ramblings about monkey business and them having their own secrets and all that. And you're like, are, are you serious, lady? Like, that is, that is some heavy-handed playwright dialogue that just doesn't feel organic at all. Um, and the last sequence that just, I'm like, this, this is terrible. Like you wouldn't put this in a Disney teen film at all. Uh, is this whole smoking marijuana in the high school hallway. And all of a sudden he's like, Hey, you want to try this? And then he's like, well, what's it feel like? Well, it, it kind of shows you how to, how out of control everything is and how you're not in charge of anything. Really? Cause you know, the last time I had an edible, I wanted Doritos and I was laughing my ass off at chicken videos. Um, so it's that pretentiousness that comes into these sequences that should be 
a no, little no comment from me. Yeah, a little bit um, endearing or or intimate. They don't feel intimate at all when your characters are dropping this schlocky dialogue. In my opinion, that's well. I I also think it it's weirdly glosses over some of the big events that happen. Like if you blink and miss it, like you'll miss the grandmother's death. And if you blink and you miss the divorce, like they do the divorce in literally like 15 seconds and it's over. Yeah. Like that's supposed to be like the, like, obviously we see his dad getting cucked during the camping trip. And you're like, this is bad. And like the moment one that they're together, you're like, they're way too friendly. And so we know the divorce is coming and it goes by so fast that, I mean, obviously it's a choice that they don't want to like harp on it, but we all know the divorce is coming and then it just goes and that's it. Yeah. I I mean, it's weird. The scene I can't figure out is the Monica and her Jesus fetish. Like what's going on there. Um, But I agree with Alex. Anytime she's on screen, you're like, well, I wasn't expecting her to do any of that stuff. So where, where's this character going? Um, and she was kind of interesting only because she was super quirky. But again, it's kind of like the 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 Judd Hirsch thing. The anti-Semitism. Probably the butt sex too. Yeah, probably. Um, but I, I, I mean, I know I'm being overly harsh, but I, I do come down into this. There's, there's, you know, a third of this thing I just really love. There's a third of this thing that I think is terrible. And there's a third of this thing that I'm like, it's really interesting. I don't know what it's doing here, but at least it's keeping me interested. You know, the, the uncle Boris and then the, the Jesus um, lady, Mm -hmm. that's, that's my breakdown. And now you may say I'm being overly harsh, but I, I would love to hear your defense of some of that schlocky, pretentious soap opera stuff and, and why it's important. I do not have a defense because most of the scenes that you described, I have written down. I got my notes written into the good and the bad, and all of those are listed in the bad. Um, Like it starts from the first scene whenever he's a little kid and goes to see the greatest show on earth. And his dad's like, movies are a moving image and it's an illusion. And I thought that was interesting. And then it like pans over to his mom and she's like, Movies are dreams. And I was just like, get yeah, out of here like, with this. They just might as well be making the jerk off motion as they're doing it. Like it's so too much. Yeah. yeah. And his, his dad says a line too when he like crashes the trains. He's like, you got to take care of it. This is how you show something. You love it. You have to take care of it. And then I'm like, what, like, what are we getting from this? It, it seems very superficial. Like it's Steven just, going back to his memories in hindsight and then being like, what was a lesson that maybe I learned from this? And then just like making them say it. And yeah, it's, it's very pretentious and annoying, I guess. I I can't decide. And I don't know what you guys feel like. um, This is, this is where I I was going to mention something about Paul. I don't know if he's any good in this thing because he he's giving me this performance that I don't know what to do with. Um, it doesn't feel like an authentic father. It feels too schmaltzy. And I don't know if it's a it's because of the heavy-handed dialogue that's a part of this script or if it's the way he's delivering it. In contrast with Michelle's performance, I think she's teetering, teetering 
on um, sort of being overtly melodramatic and not in a good way and overacting. Yeah. However, I I don't I never feel like she she went to that tipping point. I think she's up there dancing on the edge and is very close to going over. But again, even when she delivers some of those lines, I'm like, ooh, I, I don't know if it's your performance or if it's that script and that dialogue that is really making my head hurt. Um, but I feel it more with Paul's performance than I do with Michelle's performance. So there's just one shot and this is at the end whenever him and Sammy live together. There's a shot of him whenever he sees the picture of his wife and Seth Rogen like at a cookout or something. And then there's a shot of him and he just looks so sad with the shadow behind him. I love that shot. I thought he like I thought it was incredible, but I do see where you're coming from with the the rest of his performance. I like that shot too until he opened his mouth and sat down. Um that's my problem with this is I can't figure out if it's the the heavy-handed this is a really important line I'm giving to you mm-hmm. or if it's the performance. I with with Paul I feel like it's the performance with Michelle it's like yeah you did the best you can with that script man. Yeah, real quick I want I want to hear Brad's opinion but since we were on that scene Whenever I watched it, every single time I've seen it, I was like, it just happens the one day that Sammy's like having a panic attack and freaking out. And he's like, I'm going to drop out of college. I want to work in the movies. Then like his dad has a piece of mail from from the movies. I was like, has he been hiding that the whole time? And just seems a little convenient, right? Yeah. It feels like a stage play because he has the letter about the mom. He has the letter about the job thing. And it all happens on the same day. Yeah. When he wants to squish, but, but I, I was like, okay, that's Look, narrative. We're already, we're already tapping our watch when we're the audience. <laughs> like, Hey, let's, let's speed this up. Yeah. Let's, let's boil this mm-hmm. down into one day. Yeah. But I, the, the John Ford thing, it works. I mean, the dialogue, the, the delivery, the performances and that whole sequence and how you end the film. It's one of the best endings I've seen in a long time. And even that final shot. Um, but in my head, I'm making this joke. Even then it's like, Oh, we just talked about the horizon line and now we're going to move the camera. to where the horizon line goes up and it goes down. Cause that's how you make movies. Easy peasy. I, I know. But, but in my head, I'm like, well, that's interesting advice for a movie that spent its entire runtime in the middle horizon. It did. It, that, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, yeah. It's like you're making an argument against your own movie. It, it is. It's the first thing that popped in my head. I'm like, well, why didn't you take that advice from John Ford that many years ago and make an interesting film here? You 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 made me spend uh, two hours plus in this middle horizon. Um, I don't want to say garbage, but just pedestrian. It it it. This is a John Smith film. It didn't feel like a Steven Spielberg film, except for those moments that I I labeled. It's and it's also weird coming from spielberg that like we all have learned that like you you show you don't tell yeah this movie's all tell all tell Mm -hmm. all day long all day long um and i know i'm being overtly harsh but i also like i said i i feel like if this were not a steven spielberg film and you you go oh this is a john smith film people would go well this john smith he's got potential because there's these these six sequences that are really good in it but man, a majority of this film is is a trudge to get through. You can't judge all films the same because there's an expectation going into it that this is Steven Spielberg. 
So you, you, you're taking that into consideration. It's impossible not to. Yeah. The, the anti-Semitic plot is a great example of at first it's played for, for drama, right? It's like, Oh, this is going on in high school and he's being affected by this. Then it's being played for comedy. Oh, you're a Jew. Well, that's really interesting. Have you found Christ? Let me try and like stick my tongue down your throat and you'll find Christ that way. Right? So the, the swing and tone just between that sequence, it feels so amateur to be quite honest. No, you're not wrong. It's shocking. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, it's, these are just therapy sessions and there's some really interesting moments in here, but I don't know. I don't know what it adds up to, to be quite honest. And if I've seen people who love this film and they're like, Oh, it speaks to me because of the art and it makes me passionate about making films and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, I don't think the film's doing that. I think, I think you already feel that way. It's tapping into you, but in terms of storytelling, so um, how we were talking about singing the rain and, take the making a film out of it. What do you have? You, you don't have anything, right? It's integral, but it does a really good job with that. Take the filmmaking aspect away of the Fablemans and you just have everyday drama and it's nothing interesting. And again, the only, I think everybody gave this thing a pass. How this thing got nominated for Academy Award beyond me outside of he carried some weight within his circles. Here's another weird thing. Name a characteristic about one of his sisters. Just name one. One cried a lot. Uh, the the one was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not not about the character, <laughs> but the actress. Yeah. So. But like they do very they do next to nothing. Yeah. To give any of the 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 sisters any sort of leg room to do anything. One gets upset about the mom dancing. There there was that sequence. I was thinking of um, whenever Sammy's like crying about them break his parents getting divorced and he's like, how could she do this to him? And then Julia Butters, I don't know the, the sisters, but that's the actress. She was like, this must be like hard for her. Like she's lived her whole life, like trying to do this. And she's like living a lie. I thought that was a, a good moment, but that's the only time you see any amount of, I don't know, personality for many of the sisters. And then she looked over at Paul Dano and said, that's some of the greatest acting I've ever seen. <laughs> or she looked at Paul Dano. It was like, oh yeah, I get it. I, yeah, you, you should, you should run. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I, I, that, that's all I have to say about it. Like I, I, I feel like I'm trashing it and I, I, I don't mean to. Um, there are some really good, there's some really good stuff in here. I just, I just don't think it all adds up at all. I, I do think it's, it's a middle horizon film for a film that's being preachy about, you know, do a top or bottom horizon. It's like, you didn't, you didn't follow your own advice, bud. And, and you only, you only got a pass from everybody because of your name. That's, that's not true. I, Hey, that's what you think. I know. I, I get, I get slammed for doing these bold comments. Like you can't appreciate 2001 unless you see it in the theater. I get it. I get it. But here's my bold comment for this week. Um, anybody else puts their name on this thing and it gets an entirely different reception. That might be true. Yeah. So any other thoughts on the Fablemans? Um, yeah, you guys are old. I was wondering how was the problem <laughs> in 1964? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> how was the enchantment of the sea dance? I don't know. That's just really, 
just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't know, bud. Don't know. You're not getting a no. Christmas present this year for that comment. Oh, man. <laughs> no, I was curious if you guys like looked any into how much of this was based on real life and how much wasn't because I listened to like the director's guild podcast and it was Paul Thomas Anderson interviewing Steven Spielberg about this movie. And he shared a lot of cool stories. So I was wondering if, if you guys know anything about it or if I should share. No, no share away. Sure. Go. Okay. So the, the main one that I remember was that his bully was a real person and he called him up after is one of his first movies. I don't think it was Jaws, but it was one of the first two. And he's like, Hey, I, I saw this movie and it says Steven Spielberg. And he's like, was, was that you? And he's like, yeah, that was me. And um, he's like, Oh, so you're, you're actually making movies. And he's like, yeah, what do you do? And he's like, I'm an LAPD police officer. And so Steven laughed and said, yeah, that, that kind of adds up. Um, and then other than that, it was kind of weird that whenever Steven was referring to the characters in this movie, he wasn't referring to them by their characters' names. He was, he was referring to them like as his family members. And that kind of gave me like a weird, a, a weird taste in my mouth, I guess. Um, like, why not just make, make it more autobiographical autobiographical where they're their real names i like i don't know the the reason for doing the fablemans um well do you guys have any thoughts on that i i think it's <laughs> i i'm i'm still mad i burned ramen noodles maybe that's maybe <laughs> that's why i'm in a bad mood because if you if you go here is my story then it becomes something in the non-fiction tradition right but if you go back and say, well, here's this thing called the Fablemans, and it's it's partly based on some of my experiences, et cetera, then I can I can treat it as art. Uh, and I can talk about art and I can do all these things. I can have some of this pretentious dialogue because I guarantee none of those things came out of those people's mouths, except maybe the John Ford sequence, which I have seen an interview with him talking about that last sequence. And saying, yeah, that's a, to, to his memory, it's exactly how it went down to where he was belittled by Ford and he felt embarrassed and everything else. But some of those very um, weighty pieces of advice and dialogue, and this is so important, I don't, I, that feels like um, a playwright helped him write that stuff, which they did. So mm -hmm. you make it the Fablemans and now you can call it an artistic interpretation of your life story. That's my take on it. You can add fiction to it. Yeah. Yeah. You can embellish so that, the normal stuff. Yeah. Now that I think about the stories he shared in the podcast, it's actually interesting that the ones that seem to be more like real life were the moments that you mentioned, Troy, like um, him watching his grandma die. And like he, he said, he just remembers like looking at her heartbeat in her throat until it stopped. Um, Another one was like he actually edited, he caught his mom cheating on camera and was editing it together. Um, it was a lot of moments like that that I feel like are actually done well in the film, like Judd Hirsch showing up. That actually happened. Judd but Hirsch then, showed up and Steven Spielberg's house? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. about lying to <laughs> But 
it's, it's kind of like you said, it's all of the them explaining everything and adding the, the deeper meaning, to, but it's just like said in the dialogue. Um, he's like, Chet Hurst comes in, he's like, my son Jeff Goldblum is going to save the world on <laughs> July 4th. No, I look, it's the it's the Tony Kush, uh, Kushner stuff, the, the playwright. I think that's the stuff that is really detractor from the films. And the, the elements that I liked felt real. They felt like this is me putting a memory on screen. Um, and it felt authentic. But that would make total sense to me because the stuff I was attracted to actually felt like it breathed life into the story. The rest of the stuff was all playwright exposition. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. the name Fableman, too. I mean, that's just a play on the word fable. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to look at this as, not truth. And, and he can get away with that because it's semi-autobiographical and it's fiction. And sure, there's some stuff in it that really happened, but this is mostly a fable. I, I Yeah, but I mean, I'm not saying Steven Spielberg takes like transgressive chances and really pushes the boundaries of the form in his films. I think he's a great storyteller. I really do. I just, I don't know what happened or um, this, this just didn't feel like somebody who was bringing all of what he is known for to the table um, in all of the sequences here. It, it feels like he's, I'm, and I know this isn't true, but this is just an analogy since we just got done talking about legendary director Dario Argento. Um, this feels like a director who's running out of gas and he had enough for some cool stuff in here, but he, he didn't have enough there to make a two and a half hour film that memorable. I mean, this is, it is better than Dracula. Yes. A hundred percent. But you know, uh, Sammy talked about, you know, show a, show a bigger gap in director performance from something they did earlier versus their later films. Nobody's taken that from Dario Argento, but take the Fablemans versus something earlier in the career, um, e- even in even in the '90s or something of that nature. You're like, wow, this this there feels like some slippage. There's a gap. Yeah, I mean, but that you've seen that gap for a while, I think. Yeah, and not sure. I've loved a Spielberg movie in the past ten years. I really liked West Side Story. Um, I mean, I think you, I think I really liked that one though. Uh, I liked it. I just, I wish it was a little dirtier, but I know like Spielberg doesn't, his movies aren't dirty at all. So, I mean, have you seen the beginning of Saving Private Ryan? (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, it's time to ask the question. I'm curious where everybody's going to land on this. Um, I'm going to start with you, Alex. We just got done having a lively discussion over the Fablemans. Now the big question, uh, does the Fablemans deserve the bomb status or is it an underappreciated gem and it's not a bomb? Um, I'm not sure I'd call it an unappreciated gem. I, after hearing your explanation of like 33%, 33%, 33%, that sounds accurate. But whenever I was watching the, like him piecing together and like reshooting his old films, it made me want to make movies. So that extra 1% goes in there. So I'm going to say not a bomb. Okay. Alex says not a bomb. Where, where are you landing on this, Brad? So just, just to clear the record, I haven't loved a Steven Spielberg mo- movie since 2005. Oh, wow. Munich and war of worlds, war of war of the world. I, so I love those two films. Yes. Yep. 
Um, okay. As for this one, I am going to say this is not a bomb, even though I have my problems with it. It still had some stuff in there that I really enjoyed. It it did it did hit me emotionally. Um, that's going to differ based on your past. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to argue, Troy, that this isn't sloppy and has a lot of problems. But for me, I was okay with some of that stuff. I wish it was shorter, okay. but it's not a bomb. Um, I I'm so marginal on this because I'm kind of like Alex. I want to put that one percent in the category of those sequences that I think are extremely powerful for the storytelling. Um, and even if I were to find a way to put that one percent in the WTF category and go, there's these two sequences. I don't know what they belong, what they're doing in here, but they're really interesting. Unfortunately, I think that 1% is going to go into that pretentious therapy, um, everything's important category. And I'm going to say marginally, marginally, this is a bomb. Um, I have a feeling, and I will watch this again, I have a feeling I might appreciate this more on a rewatch now that you know I kind of know what I'm getting into. But I got to tell you, I had really mixed emotions on this. And if we had talked about this, you know, yesterday, I probably would have said it's not a bomb. My initial reaction afterwards, I had no idea where I was going to land on it. And I guess it's good we had time to kind of uh, decompress from our viewing. But I I can't give this thing a pass, man. I, I I really think the flaws outweigh any of the magic that is in those six or seven sequences. So it's a bomb. Wow, I don't think I there's ever opinion. been a time where a guest and I said not a bomb and you've disagreed. Uh yeah. Um and what's the uh Scarlett Johansson film? When Oh uh, uh Under the Skin? Under the, under skin. the skin. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love that's that right. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fuck you, Troy. <laughs> um Brad, you want, we got a lot of feedback. We're still, we're getting a lot of really good feedback. We had some great, uh, exchanges on the social medias over just the breaking bad episode. We breaking Brad. I keep saying that incorrectly. I'm going to get sued. You want to hear some feedback? Sure. I'd love some. Okay. This one's from John. Hey guys, I just wanted to thank you for always releasing great material. I've been really enjoying each episode. Your podcast and the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema have been a true inspiration to me. I just started up a little YouTube channel called And Now for Something a Little Bit Different, where I'll be reviewing films, comic books, and video games, among other things. I have a few horror movies worth your time. The first is the indie horror film May. It's a weird little movie that's incredibly cool. The next is a stone-cold classic, The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price. Both of these movies sadly bombed at the box office, but are both a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. All the best, John. May's the one from, like, 2002 yeah i think so that's the one he's talking about yeah yeah the lucky mckee the lucky film? mckee film that, yeah yeah that's a really good film actually both of these movies you requested are fantastic so we're gonna we'll have to put one of those in the uh drawing we will and uh and john send me the link to your youtube channel and next week i'll put it in our show notes oh yeah we want to promote that so um for anybody who's going to go to youtube and search it out it's uh, called and now for something a little bit different. So I'm sure that's a play on a Monty Python uh, TV show. So uh, I'm I'm already a fan. Okay, this one's from Kevin M. He's a, a host over at Raiders of the Podcast. 
Having scoured through the backlog of episodes, I'm pleased to see that you have not covered Vamp, and I would like to nominate that as a great October choice. According to Wiki page for it, it made $4.9 million from a $3.3 million budget. Yep, I think that's a bomb, which may be considered borderline, but it also says that reviews range from mixed to negative. Considering it came along in the year between a well-loved classic of the subgenre, Fright Night, and two very different and equally well-loved classics, The Lost Boys and Near Dark, I think it deserves to get the kind of attention and critique that you excel at. I also agree with the the Grace Jones movie. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really good. It's where they go to a nightclub, find out that some of the strippers are some of their vampires. And yeah, it's what's that guy's name? Chris make peace or whatever. Yeah. I remember him from my bodyguard, that movie with Matt Dillon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I also agree with the what, what are we doing with our lives? Like someone just calls in and says, Hey, do this movie vamp. And we're like, Oh, that's got Grace Jones. And that's got this. You asked me about my kid's birthday. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. But, I get home from work Chris and I forget peace, to put. I could just pull that from my head. I forget. I ah. forget to put water and ramen and burn the noodles. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I also, That's what happened, dude. I've had a yeah. long day. I started <laughs> like at five thirty, so don't even get start. I also agree with the people who believe it was very influential on a film that came out a decade or so later. Anyway, I'll obviously keep listening whether you get around to it or not. But I will listen while childlessly, childishly. I can't even talk now. Uh, pouting if not and thanks for reminding me to make time soon for a long overdue kingdom of heaven revisit i have the four disc dv set dvd set but i have yet to plan a viewing of the director's cut roadshow edition despite the fact that i was already more positive towards the main film than many other people keep on keeping on and please stop recommending even more podcasts that are now taking up all the memory of my devices kevin aka the raiders of the podcast scotsman I, I would recommend Kingdom of Heaven over the Fablemans. So if you could only watch one, do Kingdom of Heaven. I would watch Kingdom of Heaven twice over a single rewatch of the Fablemans. <laughs> Director's cut and all. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is from another Kevin, Kevin W. Hello Ooh, those to- Kevin should We should have the Joker come in and break a pool stick in half and have them fight. There can only be one Kevin. Oh, okay. Highlander style. I got a feeling... One of these would win pretty easily. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is from Kevin W. Hello to my favorite podcast, even though I have yet to submit a review. Well, get on that, Kevin. What are you doing? Um, you'd be remiss to not discuss Little Shop of Horrors from 1986. It's short, a musical, and can be compared to the one from the 60s, which would be like a double feature. I win. Kevin. There you go. Again, Frank Oz. Yeah, there you go. Have you seen Little Shop of Horrors, Alex? No. Ah, get on that. Let me see more. (laughs) Um, Finally, from Michael, I decided to rewatch the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. It had been several years since I last watched it, and your coverage prompted me to crack open the steelbook. There's little doubt that Ridley Scott. Rich boy over here. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. Um, There's little doubt that Ridley Scott knows how to make a historical epic. If you include Robin Hood, in which Scott attempted to tie in historical fact with the legend and the upcoming Napoleon and Gladiator 2, he'll have made nine historical films. I think perhaps Kingdom of Heaven is his best attempt. Gladiator is the most entertaining, after all, it's a revenge flick, but Kingdom is a deeper film. It's about those who question religion, those who love it without fault, and those who manipulate it for their own needs. I would also agree that Orlando Bloom is the weakest aspect of the film, but I would argue that may be due to Ridley Scott. It's often been said that he's not an actor's director, 
Harrison Ford felt that way on Blade Runner, and I often feel that Scott is at times more interested in world building rather than supporting the actors. It's not a bomb. It's a spectacular epic that raises many questions during its many epic battles. Take care, Michael. I love that. I agree with everything he said. And now I want the steelbook because uh, I didn't know that existed. Yeah. I must be. I wonder if that's a European thing. I don't know. We need, we need, there needs to be a 4K steelbook of that thing out now. I would love to see it yep. in 4K. Uh, Brad, uh, oh, how do. Yes. How does everybody like reach us? Give us their recommendations, um, and we still have time to put in votes for our October spook. Yeah, we're not going to pick until like a little bit closer to middle or uh, end of September. So you got some time. You got a few more weeks. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's notabombpodcast.com and hit the contact us button, or you can go and do our email, which is notabombpod at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Don't be next like Kevin. Week, Troy. You, oh, what's next? Well, week? Go ahead. No, what were you going to say? I was going to say, don't be a Kevin W and not leave us a review. If it's your favorite podcast, if you love this podcast um, and you want other people to find out about it, go to your favorite platform, leave us a glowing review. That's how other people will find it. Um, we love reading those things. Um, but more than anything, just write into us, participate on the conversation. We'd love to hear things like your favorite top three movies about movies. Um, Love to hear you tell me that I'm being pretentious for calling Steven Spielberg pretentious. Those are those are fun feedback uh, emails. But um, Brad, what are we doing next week? Yeah, so we are doing a 2017 space opera written and directed by Luc Besson. Luc Besson. It is Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. We get to talk about that asshole Dane DeHaan, and I can't wait. <laughs> Alex, is this on the list or have you seen this film? I have not seen it. I just watched, is that the person that made um, Leon the Professional? Yes. Yes. Okay. I just watched that for the first time. Oh, what would you think of it? Oh, I loved it. Good. Gary Oldman? Heck yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing performance. So I'm really curious of your list. What, what are some of the ones that are coming up that you're going to watch for the first time that are, that you're super excited for? Oh geez, that's that's tough. I I have a a watch pile down there. I got um at the the most recent Criterion sale. I got Miller's Crossing, Coen Brothers. Oh, oh yeah, nice. you guys just talked about Big love Lebowski. that film. Love it. Um, my girlfriend just got me All That Heaven Allows by Douglas Sirk. Okay, so I'm excited to check that one out. I'm trying to think what's next up. Um. Lawrence of Arabia is still on my list of things I need to watch, but it's so long. I'm just too busy rewatching the Fablemans, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> True. Um, and then Troy, I reached out to you recently for Westerns recommendations. So yeah, I have you watched any of those? Did you watch the wild bunch yet? Yeah. Yes, I have. Um, I watched unforgiven. Oh yeah. And I bought El Topo. Um, I haven't watched shit yet but it looks gnarly so that'll be coming up soon that's all i cannot wait for um to hear your thoughts on that um i I gotta tell you man those are some amazing picks i i am very proud of your uh i don't know just just your your general take on film what you're kind of exploring i love the fact that you're just going to all different countries and genres that's amazing 
So uh, it's fun watching you on this journey, man. It's it makes me proud. It's awesome. Thank you, thank you. I I did reach out to Brad for for the previous Criterion sale, and he had some great recommendations as well. So did you um, get any of them? I forget what they were. Oh yeah, uh, Ghost Dog. Oh yes, that was incredible. Um, uh, Le Cercle Rouge. Yes, another great one. So. You guys keep sending recommendations my way. I'll keep you guys are my go to podcast at the gym. So uh, anytime you guys mention something, it gets added to the watch list. It's about 700 movies long. I'll have to go through and clear some out. But well, now you see my problem when I listen to Gentleman's Guide, because every time Sammy will recommend something, I'm like, son of a gun, I got to go buy that. Um, Yeah, you got me hooked there, too. Yes. Well, Brad, what other podcast should everybody get hooked on? Yeah, so Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, the VHS files, which I was that my really uh let me start over. The VHS files, <laughs> which I was just on, and we talked about the top four opening scenes of films. And uh yeah, listen, enjoy that, please. Uh we also have Night of the Living podcast, Raiders of the Podcast, and the Mixtape Podcast. Check all, great all stuff. those people out, please. Yes, um, we should. And uh, so in September, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff, I think, outside of the regular show, right? We've got two Breaking Brads coming up. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've got a special episode coming out with another podcast that we'll announce here pretty soon. Yes. I'm really excited about that. And we're going to have that person on our show. Um, it's going to be a busy September. We also are working behind the scenes on... I was going to share this feedback this week, but we're still working through the details, but it's kind of cool. Let's just say somebody asked us for help on a project with a university, and um, we're going to see if we can put that together. We get grant grant money? (laughs) I don't know. You know, we haven't talked about this because a lot has happened since the last time we recorded. I'm an ordained minister now. Oh, yeah. Yes. I've I've been ordained minister in the Church of the Latter Day Dude, so um, wow. Yes, I think I I think I can like marry people now, and I get I don't have to pay taxes. I think that's how that works, oh, right? Eric from the VHS Files was married that way. Yeah, so I'm hoping to get some steady income from a side gig of of doing whatever ministers do for the Church of the Latter Day Dude. Um, but yeah. So it's it's going to be an interesting September. Um, Alex, we got to have you on again. This was awesome. If there's another bomb you come across, because I know you're really excited about talking about the Fablemans, make sure you get it to us because we're going to let you program as many of these shows as you want. You have amazing picks, wow. man. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Always, always a joy. And I'll be in your neck of the woods in uh, October, Troy. So we'll meet up and watch some movies. Of course. I can't wait. Family is so excited um, that that's going to happen. So, and I'm going to, I promise I'll spend some vacation time and get out your way too. Uh, I was hoping to, to get it when you were in the colder parts, but now that you moved a little bit closer, it's easier, I guess. Yeah. Thanks. But yeah, you're amazing. Love you, kiddo. Uh, Brad, anything else? Don't, don't love me. Okay. I guess it's easy. <laughs> no, right. I tolerate you, Brett. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wrap it up. Troy. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for uh, listening to our thoughts on the Fablemans. Come back next week. We're going to talk about comic books and a comic book movie and French directors. 
So uh, we'll see you then. Don't lose your head. 